This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Get up to 30% off well-crafted and personalized gifts from participating shops until May 12th. This year, embrace your creative side. You know, the side your mom gave you? And shop Etsy for custom jewelry, style pieces, home decor, and extra special items she'll adore. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. China is very good at setting goals and sticking to those goals investing, and they're really pushing ahead in some of these critical technologies that are going to challenge us. And if all we are going to do is just buy more of the same to try to address it, I think we're going to be on the losing end of that cost curve. I think Mr. Putin is a man who has grown up a proud Russian. He felt like that Russia was not at the table when the post-Cold War order was sort of set. And he felt like Russia was snubbed and should have been at the table. And he's determined to get Russia back at the table on determining the path of Europe, uh, as well as other parts of the world, as we see now in Syria and, and in North Africa. The trajectory of our relationship with Russia, where do you see that heading? It's not good. What he wants when he looks to his West is an EU that is fractured and disorganized, a NATO that is fractured and disorganized. I think that right now he's succeeding. That's to say nothing of his interference in our elections. And it seems to me that he's not necessarily favoring a single candidate. He just wants to see chaos. Exactly. His way. Exactly. <laughs> and, you know, everybody wants to make this an election issue on one side or the other. And I couldn't agree with you more. What he wants is chaos. He wants to drag Western democracy down to the level of Russian democracy. Retired Air Force General Phil Breedlove served as the 17th Supreme Allied Commander of Europe and as the commander of U.S. European Command. Born in Georgia, he attended Georgia Tech and was commissioned through their ROTC program. He flew F-16s in both Europe and Asia and also served as the Vice Chief of Staff of the Air Force. My close association with and deep admiration for Phil began when we were fraternity brothers at Georgia Tech. I'm fond of saying that at the time, people expected Phil to succeed. Phil is recognized as being one of our most effective, if not our most effective, Supreme Allied Commanders of NATO, and has done a lot in his public and private life to point out the danger represented by Vladimir Putin and the Russian Federation. Since he retired, he has assumed a variety of roles in business and has also taught at the Sam Nunn School of International Affairs at his alma mater. We'll be right back with our conversation after a message from our sponsor. 
I'm Sandy Winnefeld, filling in for Michael Morell, and this is Intelligence Matters. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Phil, welcome to Intelligence Matters. Sandy, it's great to be here with you, and I look forward to our conversation. Well, we have a lot to cover today. Before we get into talking a bit about Europe and Asia, the title of this program is, of course, Intelligence Matters. Can you give me a sense, as a long-serving Air Force officer, former four-star general in several key positions, of how you interacted with and depended on the world of intelligence? Well, as you know, having also been a pilot in your career, in the early, more tactical part of my career, it was all about how was I going to prepare for my mission, what was the intelligence required to get to a target, deliver a weapon, etc. A very tactical look. And that obviously through the years changed as the vice chief of staff of the Air Force began to look at what intelligence told me about the requirements that we had to make uh, to to shape uh, our Air Force. And then finally, uh, I don't have to tell you that in my role as the SACUR and as the commander of U.S. European Command um, and trying to shape policy and uh, the reactions of 28 nations and NATO, uh, intelligence was key. And and having not only an understanding of what U.S. intelligence was, but what the intelligence that was agreed to by all 28 nations, what that was, and the problems and opportunities it generated. Phil, let's talk a little bit about Asia, starting with the Korean Peninsula. You did three tours on the peninsula, including commanding a fighter wing at Kunsan Air Base in 2001. A lot has happened since then. How do you look at the current situation on the peninsula and the way ahead? It remains problematic. You know, we uh, have had people tell us for a long time that the Hermit Kingdom is going to implode. And why are we worried about it? And I guess in a glib way, we should ask ourselves, how's that working out for us? The North continues Uh, to pose a threat not only in a conventional way, but now in a more growing nuclear way. And they're determined to use those advantages to try to build uh, a a political situation with South Korea and the rest of the world that would advantage them in their day-to-day operations. You know, we uh, have, have gone from yelling about Little Rocket Man to hugs at the demilitarized zone. How do you feel about President Trump's overtures to Kim Jong-un? Have they been productive? Do you agree with them? And do you think the North Koreans will ever give up their nuclear weapons? So, um, Sandy, I think that we want to talk to them. We don't want to fight them. You know, we're sort of playing poker with someone else's chips. It would be the South Korean people that would really pay if we were to begin a, a conflict on that peninsula. And so um, I would applaud any president. I don't want to zero in on what's going on now, but any president that began a real conversation, I think we have to understand that this is a a nation and a set of leadership that it's just going to be really hard to deal with. 
and they really haven't lived up to a lot of their promises in the past. So I think we all need to have a sober judgment of what we might accomplish. But I would say, um, I would say it's better to try than not to try. And so I applaud any president that tries it. As far as giving up their nuclear weapons, I don't think so. You know, the agreed framework in the early 90s under the Clinton years, we gave them tons of money, tons of fuel, tons of food, and we got really nothing in return for it. Unless we get persistent, pervasive inspection that allows us to completely understand what North Korea is actually doing, we're going to be at risk in any agreement I think we make with them. Well, and it also seems that um, we, we have to be careful about mirror imaging on, on North Korea. You know, Kim Jong-un has to worry about both external threats, but also internal threats Absolutely. to his regime. You know, our relationship with South Korea has, like many of our allies, become a little more transactional lately. Uh, we're, we're starting to ask the South Koreans to pay a little bit more for our presence there. Have you, have you got any thoughts for us on, on U.S. basing of forces in South Korea? So it's not going to surprise you, having served almost half of my military career overseas, that I am a proponent for our military being engaged overseas. I think that that ounce of provision is worth a whole lot more than the cure if we let the peninsula go. Um, The investment that we make by having a fairly modest force forward to keep peace on that peninsula is absolutely worth it. And you're going to hear this again as we talk about forces in other places around the world. Now, this is going to be a tough fight if it ever actually happens, a conventional fight on the peninsula. Uh, we've had, we have the tyranny of distance. Yes, we have sort of fight tonight forces on the peninsula. But how do you see this unfolding? Are we going to be able to stop the North Korean hordes with Seoul right on the border? Of, so uh, I, I, it's a great question. And, and really, some of those dynamics haven't changed for 20-plus years, the fact that North Korea can range the capital and that incredibly dense population in the general Seoul area can range it with dumb conventional firepower from the backside of the Quezon Heights at any moment's notice. It's a tough problem. And how do you shut that down uh, as a force in the South? This will be a fight that the world hasn't seen in a long time. And the loss of life, both civilian and conventional military on the ground, we are not ready for that, I think, in this world. Yeah, it's going to be tough to get our forces there in time to make a difference. Absolutely. It's going to be something that nobody can really uh, accurately uh, predict. Well, we were just talking about uh, Korea and Kim Jong-un and nuclear weapons. What do you think is the greatest impediment to him actually giving up those weapons? So, Sandy, I think it doesn't take a lot of looking into history to see what has happened to every uh, despotic leader that has given up or had his nuclear weapons taken from them um, to, to realize that the, the leaders in the North see this as their guarantee. And I, I think one of the, the toughest things in my tour as the SACUR is what happened in Ukraine. Uh, Here, Ukraine in the early 90s had an agreement with four signatory nations uh, that if they gave up their nuclear weapons, that their territorial integrity and sovereignty would be guaranteed by those nations. Uh, And so they gave up their nuclear weapons. And what happened? happened? One of the signatories invaded them, and two of the other signatories 
did nothing about it. Well, and that's to say nothing of Libya and, of course, Iraq. Many view China as our most capable potential adversary. They've been closing previously existing gaps in conventional capability and opening new ones in asymmetrical capability. This is making life very difficult for the Pacific Command commander, as you might imagine. Do you think we can keep pace with the Chinese through only improvements in our capability? And if so, where do you see that heading? What kind of capabilities do we need in order to to keep uh, an advantage out there? Actually, uh, I don't think that's the right way to go. I've heard you talk about this, and I have to happen to agree with some of the thoughts you have about we, we get locked into certain things. The ends aren't changing, uh, so we have ways and means. We typically focus on those means because they are what we do as an industrial nation here in America, and I think that that changing the the ways may be the the end attack we have to take. The bottom line is China is very good at setting goals and sticking to those goals, investing, and they're really pushing ahead in some of these critical technologies that are going to challenge us. And if all we are going to do is just buy more of the same to try to address it, I think we're going to be on the losing end of that cost curve. Just like we applied that to Russia and it's past. I think China's putting us on the wrong side of that cost curve now. So you, you uh, I think, uh, have a clear feel that just buying more stuff is not going to do the trick. There's sort of an intermediate step maybe between having to, to rethink the whole strategic challenge out there, and that is better stuff. Is, is there anything out there, any kind of breakthrough that, well, well, that could let me give just, us an advantage? Yeah, let me back up just a tiny bit. So so we do have to fix readiness. The force needs to fix readiness. And some of that fixing readiness is investing in some of those capabilities that we need. So I don't want to say we don't need to buy anything and we need to flip this uh, because we do. We've got, to, we've got to recapitalize some fleets that have been rode hard and put up wet in all of our services uh, but in the meantime, I think that if all our imagination is captured in doing more of the same, we will lose in this proposition against China. We have to think about changing the cost curve in more than money, imposing on them issues and problems that they have to deal with like they're imposing on us. And so I, I do believe that that we need to be thinking about new technologies of defense we need to be thinking about uh, the kind of technology that allows us to strike with precision at range and not cost us, you know, an arm and a leg to do it. So, Phil, let's drill in a little bit more um, beyond now the capacity piece and the technical capability piece. If we actually bump up against the, the wall here and we have to think of a whole new strategic concept for China, do you have a, a sense for what that might look like? Is it about changing our ends and lowering our ambition in the Western Pacific? Or is it or is some different thing we can do that would present China with the dilemmas we've talked about? So... I I don't know that it's all that easy to just change our ends. You know, the, our our world and our societies expect certain things: free passageway in the commons, free trade, et cetera, et cetera. And so, I'm not sure that that we're capable as a nation of really drastically changing the ends. And as I said before, if all we're going to do is look at means 
um, I think that we're going to be in a in on the backside of a, a real problem here. So I do believe we have to look at at different ways, and and I think that they are uh, they are at risk in um, if we do. Um, if we hold them at risk inside their mainland. Right now, we are not thinking about uh, attacking the mainland because this is a nuclear power. And frankly, they have done a pretty good job at holding us at bay and putting us at risk. But if we make them understand through our investments and our new types of uh, thinking about how to address this problem that they are at risk in their homeland, I think it will change the calculus a bit. So let's turn to your most recent work, where you served last uh, in the military. And, you know, you're well known for your views on Vladimir Putin and Russia. You've been very outspoken on that. What do you think is motivating the Russian leader? And what do you see as the trajectory of our relationship with Russia, Phil? So um, none of this will be terribly new because my my views haven't changed, but let's just recoup. So first of all, I think Mr. Putin is a man who has grown up a proud Russian. He grew up in the KGB. He did not like the way the Cold War ended. He felt like that Russia was not at the table when the post-Cold War order was sort of set. And he felt like Russia was snubbed and should have been at the table. And he's determined to get Russia back at the table on determining the path of Europe uh, as well as other parts of the world, as we see now in Syria and, um, and in North Africa. Um, and frankly, it's, it's a bit tough to say, but remember, this is a kleptocrat. You know, Mr. Putin has never been paid officially more than an Army or Air Force lieutenant colonel. He's been a public servant all his life, and yet he's one of the richest men in the world. This is a kleptocrat who has been extracting wealth from that nation. He doesn't want to lose that wealth stream. So I think you've got on one side a proud Russian that believes Russia was snubbed and should be a major power. And on the other side, there's a man that really likes the stream of money that comes from his position. We'll be right back with our conversation after a message from our sponsor. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with BiteClear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. BiteClear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Phil, to continue our discussion, I asked you about the trajectory of our relationship with Russia. Where do you see that heading? It's not good. Um, you know, if I, if I was to imagine being in the room having a cognac with Mr. Putin at this point, I would think he would be a very happy man. What he wants when he looks to his West is an EU that is fractured and disorganized, a NATO that is fractured and disorganized. He wants to deal with individual nations individually on individual security and um, business matters. And uh, I think that right now he's succeeding. Let's just look at the state of conversation 
uh, in NATO. Let's look at the state of conversation in in Brexit and EU, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think that right now what we see from Mr. Putin is unlikely to change because in his mind, I believe, he sees his path as working. Well, and uh, that's to say nothing of his interference in our elections. And it seems to me that he's not necessarily favoring a single candidate. He just wants to see chaos and exactly. getting his way. Exactly. <laughs> and I think that's a point that, that this particular city we're sitting in seems to gloss over. You know, everybody wants to make this an election issue on one side or the other. And I couldn't agree with you more. What he wants is chaos. He wants to drag Western democracy down to the level of Russian democracy. And, of course, in some ways, he's having some success there. Which helps him set the expectations of his own people. Now, Phil, you had a Russian counterpart, a very interesting guy, Valery Gerasimov, who's the chief of the general staff of the Russian armed forces. He's very active, to say the least, and has very strongly held views on the competition between Russia and NATO. Can you tell us a bit about your relationship with him and how you perceive his views? Let me just first start with this is an intelligent man, a thinking man, and I believe he does a lot of his own writing. Maybe not the final products, but you can see what he thinks reflected in his speeches and his writing. So this is a learning, adaptive leader, and I think we need to respect him for that. I started off trying to build a relationship with him, and he and I began meeting on a series of video teleconferences and, and so forth. But uh, sadly, I, 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 uh, I won't argue with why, but sadly, when the Russians invaded Crimea and then when they went in and invaded Donbass and set up the, the, the radicals there, the Sakur first was told no longer to speak to Mr. Gerasimov. And then the U.S. European Command commander was also told to stop conversations with Mr. Grozimov. And I'd draw a contrast there, not to interrupt, that you know, when Russia invaded Georgia, the only contact between our two governments was between the chief of the general staff, Makarov, and Admiral Mike Mullen. I must uh, but- tell you that, that it's, you're right, and that was right in my opinion. Um, uh, I, I believe when conflict is happening, you step up your conversation. You don't shut it off. And I, I had uh, offered my opinion about what we should do, but I was given direction from my leadership, and I followed that direction. Well, um, and look what's happened. So now looking at the big picture, end of the Cold War, uh, the declaration of a peace dividend, do you think we went too far in drawing down from Europe? How do you feel about the ability now of the alliance to respond to Russian aggression? And let's start with you know, how it might actually start and how you see it playing out in our ability to, to, right. to carry the day. So I do believe uh, we overcorrected. All of us, all the nations of NATO and our partner nations as well, we all took big peace dividends. And we in the U.S. removed so much capability from Europe. I can't even, we don't have time to describe how big we were when Captain Phil Breedlove was in 2nd Brigade, 3rd Infantry Division, standing with the Army as a, a TAC-P or an ALO uh, in, in the early 80s. Um, well, that's an air liaison officer for the unanointed. Officer. Yeah, so uh, a Ford Air Controller, Army uh, Associated. And so um, 
I think we have overreacted and and now we are having to sort of rethink about how we can do that but but again not only did we withdraw our troops from Europe but we downsized all of our militaries and probably more damaging you could speak better to the navy but probably more damaging we have put such a strain on the military that we have that our readiness is well below where it was when we faced the Soviet Union across the border. So I, I do believe that we have correction that needs to be made. So let's drill a little bit more deeply into that. Where do you, what do you see as the advantages, operational military advantages that Russia has if they decide to get a little feisty vis-a-vis the NATO alliance? So the NATO alliance is on their back door. Um, and it's a whole other subject to talk about the encroachment, but some of the nations that used to be Warsaw Pact are now NATO uh, alliance members. And so um, if, if you remember Jean Monnet, uh, that great thinker, he talked about interior lines. Russia has the ability to quickly move and mass their forces where NATO has to respond to the area. And I know you understand this better than most because of your naval background. But in the Cold War, we, we fought to maintain the lines of contact with the east coast of America and Europe. During the post-Cold War days, we have all but stopped worrying about fighting our way across the Atlantic. In fact, we assume safe passage across the Atlantic. And that's not the case anymore. And so Russia enjoys that ability to rapidly bring forces together. And if you've ever looked at Moscow and the spider network of roads and railroads from there, you understand how quickly they can do this. And then you have to look at what NATO has to do to respond. It's it's a physics problem. And that's not to mention uh, singularity of command and control, Absolutely. Uh, 28 nations having to decide uh, versus one, and some of the uh, advantages they have in artillery and tactical air defenses and the like. So do you see the need, as we talked about with China, for a new way? Or is it is it just sort of get the stuff back over there so that we can be more prepared? The answer is yes. It's a little bit of all of that. So I think that we, again, have to address our readiness. We and our primarily or as well our allies need to bring forces to capability and readiness. Um, and yes, we need to look a little bit about do we have the appropriate forces over there. Frankly, I don't believe we'll ever permanently move another force to Europe. But we need to settle ourselves in a way with prepositioning and other uh, tactics to be able to rapidly reinforce. And then, as you know, we're with the second fleet, we're starting to now rethink how we defend our sea lines of, of contact with uh, America. But as we talked about with China, we've got to think about different ways. It, it just can't be means anymore. We've got to change the paradigm a little bit in Europe. You know, as one of the the most important organizations that was put into place in the wake of World War II uh, with the intent of preventing such large wars from ever happening again was NATO. And our relationship with NATO has always been up and down. Uh, Where do you see it now? How do you see uh, President Trump's influence Mm -hmm. on that relationship 
how do you feel about your your old buddies back in Europe? So so it's a it's an interesting story. And as people sort of pick at me about this, I remind them that we were thrown out of a NATO country once, um, literally thrown out. And so, yes, we've had some peaks and valleys in our relationship in NATO. I would tell you that I have watched every one of the last three presidents try to get NATO to invest more in itself. Um, And while you and I may not agree with the tactics, techniques, and procedures used, we actually now have NATO allies reinvesting in themselves. It's been a bit of a rocky road, and we'll just leave it at that. So it may be that we don't don't necessarily like the tone, but the result seems to be uh, maybe in a direction we want. Much has been made of the fact that the Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty, or START, expires in 2021. The U.S. withdrew from the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty in August 2019 because Russia failed to return to full and verified compliance through the destruction of its non-compliant missile system. Was pulling out of that treaty the right thing to do? So this is uh, now just my opinion, um, that you got it right. Uh, we were the only one in the treaty. It's kind of have, hard to have a treaty with yourself. Russia had abrogated the treaty. So the question is, how do you move forward? How do you try to re-engage Russia? Um, the choice was to back out of the INF. If it had been me making that decision, I think I'd have done it differently. I would have tried to build from an existing treaty. I just think it's easier to do that than to renegotiate entirely a new treaty. But let me throw one more curveball into this this calculus, and that is that we really need to have a treaty with more than just Russia. And it would be incredibly hard, but to get China into a treaty as well, because they are going to be an issue. And frankly, right now, I think Russia has more issues with China's capabilities than with ours, because we really don't have any in Europe right now. It could be one of the reasons why they violated the treaty, right? It's because they're more Absolutely. worried about we China. We have to be intellectually honest. How do you feel about the, the Russian assertion that the missile defense system that's in Romania, which is a Aegis system that not only can carry the SM-3 missile, that's a ballistic missile defense thing, uh, could also theoretically carry the Tomahawk missile, and therefore we were also in violation of the INF Treaty. What's your take on that? I think that's a convenient excuse for the Russian Federation to offer. I think it's, uh, it's, it's hogwash. So the Russians have been developing some pretty exotic new strategic weapons, right? Nuclear cruise missiles, hypersonic weapons, and even big transoceanic nuclear torpedoes as we saw the strategic glance over Vladimir Putin's soldier looking at, or shoulder looking at a, at a PowerPoint slide. But they've also talked about extending the START treaty. That almost seems to be at odds with each other. What do you see the trajectory of strategic arms control agreements with Russia? I will offer you my hope. I think we need to stay in the START. I think we need to grow from that to a new round of understandings. I think we need to wrap China into these conversations and try to, to, to bring that uh, in dynamic in. And I think we need to back in now and, and get a new INF-like treaty, even if it's only with Russia, but it would hopefully be with China. Um, and, and I think that uh, we, we want to do everything we can to slow this, this race to expanding the nuclear countries of the world. 
So one of the things that's always been a thorn in Russia's side in terms of arms control agreements is ballistic missile defense. They, they firmly believe that our development, or at least they, they say they believe, that our development of ballistic missile defense was designed to negate their ability to, re- to respond to an attack and therefore it would create strategic instability. Do, Phil, do you, do you think that they actually believe this or do you think they're using it as a convenient foil to try to just get us to get rid of ballistic missile defense? I think it's the latter. We all know that uh, okay. Russia has the ability to overwhelm our defenses. The only thing that a small uh, defense that we have, if it's credible, and I think ours is and gets more credible every day, the only thing that does is sort of take away the coercive value of small attacks uh, to be to force us to think differently as we talk and negotiate with Russia. But we, we can't build enough missiles to stop their attack. And frankly, I think they're more worried about our decapitation of their ability to launch an attack than they are about our missile defense. I think it's, a, again, a sort of convenient tool to try to shape us at the, at the negotiating table. Now, Phil, you know, the realization that I came to in the last couple of years I was on active duty, uh, that our space command and control capability was a bit weak, was a very unforgettable moment for me. That's getting a lot better. Uh, The department has tried to reorganize itself for space. As a career Air Force officer, can you give me a sense for what your thoughts are on the new new space force? You know, getting beyond the grief they've taken over logos and uniforms and the like. Do you think that uh, the department's headed down a wise path here? Um, I think we're on a path and we're going to make it as wise as we can. I love the way that our current chief of staff sort of said it a few years ago. He said, we are currently an air and space force. In 40 years, we're going to be a space and air force. We in this service absolutely accept and acknowledge that that transition is going to happen. The real key here then is how fast does that happen? It matters not now. The decision was to move out. And so I think you're going to see everybody that wears a blue uniform uh, embrace that and move out. And, and I'm, I'm actually happy about that. What I think we need to understand is that since we have done this so abruptly and so suddenly, we've got some problems to take care of. And one of them starts with people or in the commercial world, the HR business of the Air Force. How do we manage these people that were formerly Air Force? And, and dutifully became missileers because we told them they had to be missileers to get promoted. And now we got this mixture of people that aren't purely space, some of them missileers. How do we not, how do we not damage those highly uh, valued members of our services as we do this really abruptly into the future? And so um, I am... I embrace and am proud for the fact that we're going to create a space force. I don't want to leave dead and broken bodies along the way as we do that. And we, so we need to do it uh, quickly. And I think that I believe in Star Wars. There's going to be X-Wing fighters. I hope my grandchildren are flying them sometime in the future. That sounds like fun. Maybe we were born too early. That's right. So, Phil, you, you uh, have just a little bit of time left. You, I've known you a long, long time. You've had a fantastic career you're one of the most highly regarded officers, let alone Air Force officers, that I, that I know. Can you give me uh, a sense for what the most valuable or the most rewarding part 
of your career was, whether it's NATO or your time in, in a blue uniform, what was the best part for you? So it changed, Sandy. I think you and I both agree when we were when we were ensigns and lieutenants and captains and majors and commanders. I mean, all I wanted to do is fly that F-16. I wanted to be the most effective, efficient killing machine out there. I wanted to be right for my nation. Um, and then along the way, I was asked to command. I commanded um, at a very small level in the Army. I commanded a squadron, a group, three fighter wings, a numbered Air Force, a MAGCOM, and then an alliance. And I will tell you that the most rewarding part of my career was working with the soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines that I got to command along the way. It is absolutely incredibly, it is our number one resource, are those soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines. And, and uh, I would just tell you that even though I loved flying the F-16, being able to lead troops was a big deal to me. Well, that's a great way to, to end. Phil, thanks so much for spending time with our listeners today. It's been a great discussion. Thanks, Sandy. That was General Phil Breedlove. And I'm Sandy Winnefeld, filling in for Michael Morrell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. This has been the Intelligence Matters podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morrell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. The podcast is produced by Olivia Gassis. Jamie Benson, and Jake Rosen. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you download podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at Intel Matters Pod and follow Michael at Michael J. Morrell. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News Radio. Catch every episode of 60 Minutes, America's most watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in depth investigations across politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad free on Wondery Plus.